about the, uh, the terminology of Christ being our refuge, being our rock, our constant. Uh, we're going to sing a, a great song that reminds us of that. We just learned it a couple, week, a couple of months ago, I think, and I can't find it. Two pages. There we go. Uh, and there's a scripture uh, comes exactly from uh, Psalm 1914 that speaks of this very song. Let's, uh, let's say it together. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
we talk about that spirit that surrounds us, that rock, that fortress that we can always depend on, we're going to sing a song, the choir and orchestra and Cammie, that reminds us that he doesn't pull us out of the problems. He doesn't separate us from the problems. Sometimes he does, but 99.9% of the time he doesn't. But he assures us that he is there with us, and we can always depend on him. Let's pray. Lord God, we just come before you now in this time of offering, time of giving. Lord, may we be a cheerful people in our giving. May we be a faithful people in our giving. For years and years and years, without end, without, without wavering, uh, as far as I can remember, this church has always been so generous in giving of their tithes and their offerings. Lord, we just thank you for that. Lord, if there are still those believers who are still trying to um, uh, acquire that, that concept of, of t turning over their financial lives to you and being faithful in that area, Lord, we pray that they would uh, discover the joy of that and discover the obedience uh, leads to joy. And we just uh, thank you for this time of offering. In Christ's name we pray. Certain circumstances, things I could not understand. Many times in trials, weakness blurs my vision. That's when my frustration gets so out of hand. Oh, but it's then I am reminded that I've never been forsaken. And I never had to stand one test alone. Then I look at all my victories, and the spirit rises up in me. And it's through the fire my weakness is made strong. He never promised that the cross would not get heavy. And the hill would not be hard to climb. He never offered a victory without fighting. And he said, help would always come in time. Just remember when you're standing in the valley of decision and the
That one touched some roots down in me. A little southern gospel, huh? Yep. Just hold on. That's really, really good for us to hear in light of the text of scripture we have in front of us. So, Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Let's read it again in its entirety, but our focus will be upon verses 4 through 7 today. Each section, the three that are found in Psalm 46, are ended with Selah, which we think is a musical interlude. And this one is from the choir master, the Sons of Korah, which we believe was the musical guild for Israelite worship or the composer of the music. And so the Bible says to the choir master of the Sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. So we should sing, right? We should sing it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the, to the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. There's your relevancy of the song. Hold on. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord. Here's an invitation, folks. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. Stop your striving. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. On February 22nd, 1996, I was sitting in chapel at Southeastern Theological Seminary, and I had the privilege of hearing whom I believe is one of the choicest servants that the Lord ever put on the face of the earth, and her name was Elizabeth Elliot. She spoke in chapel that day. You may be familiar with books like Through Gates of Splendor or in the Shadow of the Almighty, or Journals of Jim Elliot. But she was, again, in my opinion, a choice servant of the Lord. But here's what you know about Elizabeth Elliot. She lived a life filled with life-shattering events. She said once in an interview, suffering is not for nothing. I like that. Suffering is not for nothing. As a young wife and mother, I think the little girl Valerie was two at the time, uh, Elizabeth experienced the loss of her husband, Jim. Jim was one of the five missionaries to the Alca Indians in Ecuador. Jim and that whole missionary band, uh, they were trying to bring the gospel to a savage Indian tribe. And on Sunday morning, January the, the 8th, 1956, they all were speared to death within hours of landing on a sandbar along the river in Ecuador. That's enough tragedy there, right? 
And you know the story of Elizabeth and the ladies who stayed there in Ecuador and led many of those people to Christ, even the ones who held the spears in their hands and killed her husband. An amazing story of the grace of God. But she also later remarried to a man named Addison Lynch. And he was a professor at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And Addison, too, was a godly man. Jim, I, Jim died instantly, but Addison was struck with cancer. And he suffered a slow and agonizing death with cancer. In referring to Psalm 46, Elizabeth Elliot said these words. In the first shock of death, everything seemed most dependable. Everything that seemed most dependable had given way. Mountains were falling. The earth was reeling. In such a time, it's a profound comfort to know that although all those things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. Well, that's Psalm 46, isn't it? And I remind you of last week to know that everything is going to be, is shaking, and will be shaken in the future. God is not shaken. So I remind you, looking back at verses 1 through 3, when everything that seems to be steadfast and secure and immovable begins to crumble around you, you don't need to be afraid. Again, that's simple Bible math. God is our refuge. God is our strength. A very present help. In trouble. How does faith deduce that summary? How do we sum up those three things? Verse 2, do not be afraid. In the next section of this psalm, there's actually a focus on the city of God. So the first point was the Lord is with us through calamities. The second point is the Lord's presence and the Lord's word are the delight of the people of his city. There is a dramatic change in the tone and the atmosphere beginning in verse 4. Though its waters roar in verse 3 and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, and here's this dramatic change. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So from the description of earthquakes and raging waters... We're brought in verse 4 into the presence of a marvelous river and a holy city. There is in this text a marvelous reversal here. Earthquakes, raging waters are turned into something different. Instead of a raging sea, you've got a river from which flow joyful streams. Instead of trembling and tottering mountains, you have immovable an immovable city. Instead of nations roaring and kingdoms tottering, you have God's voice. Don't underestimate that. You have God's voice. You have his utterance. You have the word of God with ultimate power and authority over all kingdoms. All nations. And his voice is so mighty and it is so powerful that it dissolves all opposition like the sun melts the snow. The power of God. So, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The first thing I note in thinking about the Lord's word and that city being the, the delight for his people, his presence, the first thing I think about is there is a city of God. I mean, that's just common sense, right? If it says in the text, 
there is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, we have to stop and say, well, the Bible clearly teaches there is a city of God. That's what the text says. And the clarification of that city is the next verse, the next part of the verse. You see it? Look at the text. The holy habitation of the Most High. This city of God is the holy habitation of the Most High God. The city is where God himself dwells. Now, in order for us to think about that city, we need to have a little theological lesson. Are you ready? You didn't burn it too late last night, did you? Out on the town on Saturday, you may not lock into this, but we have to think about it. In the Old Testament understanding, when you would hear there is a city of God, what would you immediately think of? Zion, right? You would think of that. Some of you looked at me kind of dumbfounded. You should think of that, all right? The holy city of the Lord, if you're thinking in Old Testament, Old Testament terminology, Zion, you would think of Mount Zion, the city. It was another name for Jerusalem. This ends up having an entire theology behind it. There is, of course, the literal and historical city of Jerusalem or Mount Zion. It was considered the capital of Israel and was considered to be, to the Israelites, the city of God. After the kingdom was divided, what happened? When it was divided between the north and the south, actually Jerusalem becomes again Mount Zion, which is the capital of the southern kingdom. This was the original, in their understanding, eternal city of God. So faithful Israelites would make their way up to the city three times a year, and they would be singing the Psalms of Ascent. And there's multiple Psalms of Ascent that we have in the Psalms. And what are they doing? They're going up to the city of God and they would observe the feast and they would join there with the people of God to worship. The psalmist could say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So as time goes by, Zion gets bigger than just a small geographical piece of real estate inside the city limits of Jerusalem. Zion ends up being the very place of God's presence and his kingship. It's not simply a city that had a religious significance. It ends up being the very center of God's presence and from where he reigns. Take your copy of God's Word. Just look to the right. In my Bible, it's just a look to the right. It's Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Psalm 76, if you don't have time to get there, listen to what the word says. Psalm 76, verses 1 and 2. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place is Zion. So, the earthly king David dwelt in a personal, physical city. Yet in an ultimate sense, it is where Israel's king, the real king, the only king, Yahweh, the true and living God, dwells. So it is his place of power, his presence, and his kingship. It again takes on another 
significant characteristic theologically because it becomes representative of God dwelling with his people. Okay? If you're tracking with me, it represents God dwelling with his people. In this sense, it is the mother city of all the people of God. It's the, it's the dwelling place for all the people of God. Psalm 87. So I guess you're scrolling on your phone, not turning pages, right? I don't hear any pages, so I'm assuming that you're scrolling on your phone. Psalm 87. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is so incredible. Psalm 87. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab. Does Rahab seem to be a candidate for the grace of God when we first meet this prostitute who is a Gentile outside of the commonwealth of Israel? Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philista and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Is anybody tracking with what this is saying? It's a remarkable thing because Psalm 87 actually is a celebration of the city of God. And in this statement here, what do you know about these people? Not a single one of these technically has a birth certificate that says, I was born in Mount Zion Hospital. Right? Not a single one. But clearly, these people are identified as the people of God because they were born into the family of God by Christ. And so they're part of the family of God. This is the people of God. So, Jew or Gentile. That makes up all the people who have ever lived and that are saved. These people are embedded in Israel's history so deep that in literal fashion the scripture says they were born there. Even though they didn't have a birth certificate of becoming or being an Israelite. So the church will inherit that perspective so that Paul could say these words. And if you're a Bible student, you know what Paul is saying when he says this in Galatians. If you've never thought of it, you may think, what in the world is he saying? But in Galatians 4.26, he says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. What does that mean? Well, it's taking on the connotation that all of us, the people of God, belong to true Israel or the true church or those who are part of Zion. It's the people of God. When you get to Hebrews 12, verse 18, y'all listening? I'm building a case, and if you don't listen, you're going to miss it. All right? Hebrews 12, verse 18, the writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, what mountain is this? This is going to be a long sermon. <laughs> what mountain is this? Which one could not be touched? Sinai. Si Some of you sound like you said Zion. But it's Sinai. Go back. Sinai could not be touched. If you touched the hem of the mountain, you died. That's not the mountain that you've come to if you're in Christ. Here's what Hebrews says. But you have come to Mount Zion. 
the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Ah, that's good. Amen. You haven't come to Zion, uh, Sinai. You come to Zion. And here's what the Hebrew writer, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Can't, I can't wait to get in Hebrews. Are you ready? Toward the end of September. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, folks, when we arrive in Hebrews 12, Mount Zion is analogous to the city of God, and the city of God is analogous to the people of God. Why? It's because God's promise from the beginning was in the covenants that I will have a people for myself. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will dwell with you. And that is fulfilled to the ultimate sense when we get to the New Testament or the New Covenant. So it is Mount Zion which is the people of God on earth. In fact, are y'all listening? This morning, Zion sang the songs of Zion. And that was you. You need to think about this. You sang the songs of Zion if you're the people of of God, the temple of the living God, which is the city of the living God, wherein his people, where he dwells within his people, who are in communion with him, are Mount Zion. There is a sense where Zion is both already and not yet. It's an already in that you've come to Christ, whose blood speaks a better testimony than the blood of Abel to a mediator of a new and better covenant. You come to Zion, which is the new covenant church. There's also a sense that this city is a city to come. It's not here yet. I am, for one, very glad that this is not all there is. I hope you are. There will be an apocalyptic destruction of the world as we know it. Look at me real close. It will not be global warming. It will not be climate change. It, if it is, it's because the God who made it melts it. It will be global. And it will be hot. And there will be destruction. Which, when we get to verse 8, I hope you understand that these words, Come behold the works of the Lord. He's asking you to come behold judgment. We forget this. We just say, be still and know that he's God. Whoopee! He's wanting you to think about that in the terms of judgment. He has caused desolation in the world before, and he's going to do it again. So, there's an already and a not yet. There will be an apocalyptic destruction to this world. There will be a new creation made out of it. Hallelujah. There will be a cosmic temple if I had time to go through Ezekiel 40, through verse chapter 48, we would. Have you read Ezekiel? You know you don't want me to do that, right? <laughs> Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. And then you have Daniel 9, 24. So you have the new Jerusalem that we will enjoy, the waters of life-giving, of a life-giving river. So the city that is to come is a city where righteousness will dwell. A city in which there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more curse, and no more death. That's coming in the future. 
The old things will pass away, and God will make all things new. Yet you are also waiting. Well, there's the already. Okay, we're going to hit that in a moment. There is a river who makes glad the city of God. There is the already, but there's also the not yet. Even though we're citizens in heaven today, according to Philippians, right? There is a citizenship in a sense which awaits us. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, what do you know about physical Jerusalem? Is there a river in Jerusalem? No, there's not. There is a river that makes glad the city of Jerusalem. What, what, what do we have? We have streams that come out from the pool of Siloam. It was those springs that gave Jerusalem its water. This water was funneled, if you remember correctly, in Hezekiah's day. It was funneled during the assault of the Assyrians. So Psalms 46, though, is not a geographical lesson. Psalm 46 is a poem. Right? It's a song. So the poem tells us that there is a river that has this unbelievably gently flowing, quiet spring. What we have here is the imagery of an echo of the Garden of Eden. And even when you get to Isaiah 8, verse 6, it says the waters of Shiloh. When you get to Ezekiel 47, there's a vision of a temple where a river flows out from the temple that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it actually encompasses the entire world. So in the city of God, which is the people of God, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. James Hamilton points out that the term rendered streams in Psalm 46.4 is the same word used in Psalm 1 verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. Its leaf shall not wither and whatsoever he does it shall prosper. Same word. Streams, river is the same word. So what do we take from that? When it says there is a river that makes glad the city of God, we have to at least say here that there's a massive emphasis upon the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Then he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. So the emphasis, folks... And that's why I've divided it or given you that division, that point in your bulletin, is because the Word of God and the presence of God is the delight of the people of God when you belong to the city of God. When you are saved, you long for His presence and you long for His Word. And to you, it is the stream of life that makes glad the city of God. So, in the New Testament... Jesus will say, I wasn't going to turn there, but I must. John 7, don't you love this? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John gives commentary in verse 39. Now, this is, this he said about the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For yet, for as of yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, Jesus teaches us that the river whose streams make glad the city of God 
is the idea of the streams that refresh the people of God with spiritual blessings that come through the Holy Spirit of God. So we're bringing together the Spirit and the Word of God. We've got this beautiful picture that you must think about. Are you ready? So outside, we've got these crashing waves. We've got these foaming, surging, chaotic seas. But on the inside, we've got quiet waters. How are you navigating your life? How do you navigate life right now? When on the outside, you've got all these things. It's chaotic. There's surging foam, according to verses, verses 1 through 3. There's crashing waves. But on the inside, there are gently flowing streams that bring joy and gladness. What do you think about that gloomy Gus? What do you think about that, Christian? I mean, it's almost like you have to prod people to smile and be glad that they're saved by grace through faith. It's almost like we've been lulled to sleep in the United States. I tell you what we need, we need more persecution. Oh, preacher, no, don't talk like that. Oh, yes, when you get it, it will make glad the city of God. Because you'll learn quickly where your bread is buttered. You will learn quickly, if you are a believer, who you belong to. Much like Elizabeth Elliot, who can lose two husbands. Who can continue until, I don't know how old she was, she didn't die. I heard her in 1996, she died in 2015. Way up there in age, still praising and glorifying the Lord and saying things like, <clears throat> suffering is not for nothing, right? There's a purpose for what God is doing. So what an awesome picture of the church, the city of God, Zion. In the midst of his people, you find free, flowing spiritual blessings that come to us from the word and the spirit that brings us joy. There's a refreshment. That happens <coughs> within the city of God. I don't know what you think about this, but I know it to be a fact. The world lives for Friday. But the people of God should live for the Lord's day. It is on that day we gather, and no matter what the waves are like during the week, we gather together as the city of God, and there are streams that make us glad. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Please be careful. Not to abandon this source of life and joy for a wilderness of raging seas where you will be absolutely alone. That's not the way God intended for believers to live. That's why he brought you to a city. Not by yourself, but a city, a people. That's how he brought you in. That's why he brought you into a kingdom, a priest, people. Listen to John Newton. Who is John Newton? He wrote Amazing Grace. You know who he is now, right? Here's, here's how he paraphrases this thought in Psalm 46. See the streams of living water springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want removed. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to suede? Grace which like the Lord the giver never fails from age to age. Here's one, of, uh, here's one phrase in another line uh, of the hymn that may be the best. Here's what he says. 
Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children's know. Children know. That is so true. A lost person has no idea of the river or the streams of living water, which is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But if you're saved, you do. As the people of God, you know exactly what this is. Solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. Wow. Next in verse 5, we not only see that there is a city of God, we see that the city of God is made up of God's presence and his strength. Look at verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So who's right in the midst of the city? Well, it's the Lord God. He's dwelling with his people. And this is the very heart of the promise. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Because our God is in the midst of her, don't you like this? She will not be moved. Folks, see clearly here, God's presence is our security. See clearly in this text that his presence, God is with his people, is our security. His dwelling with them is their stability. Outside, there is tumult, there is instability, and in our world today, there's absolute insanity. Outside, there is shaking and trembling. Inside, there is peace and security. The city never moves, no matter what's going on, on the outside. Hallelujah. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Well, what can we say about the church of the living God? Has the gates of hell overpowered it? If we go, out, go back to the Roman Empire, we know that the Roman Empire was seeking to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. They sought to destroy it by vicious persecution, by destroying all of the copies of the Word of God by destroying leaders and by destroying churches. The goal, again, was to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth because Christ's followers would not say, Caesar is Lord. They would not say that. So thousands upon thousands died execution style because they would not say, Caesar is Lord. So here we are 2,000 years later. And for lack of a better way of saying it, I think Roman, the Romans would turn over in their grave if they knew throughout the whole world that they are now worshipers for King Jesus and they couldn't stop it. No matter how hard they tried. The opposition did not stop there with the Romans. There were little groups all over Europe that held fast to the word of God under intense persecution. They stood fast and held to the gospel. We know full well, according to history, that the Roman Catholic Church did their best to destroy these groups that held fast to the Word of God, held fast to the kingship of Christ, held fast to the Word of God, and we found out that papacies come and go, but Jesus Christ's church still stands. Right? Then there was China under the communist rule. They sought to do all they could to destroy the Christian church. The Mao, or Mayo dynasty. Think about that. I saw a woman on, news, on the news today that survived that communist revolution in China. And she gave testimony about the fact that communism, 
hates any competition. They want absolute control. And so they're going to come after you if you don't agree with them. They're going to suppress you. And after a century plus of mission activity by men like Hudson Taylor, George Stott, you better know this one, Lottie Moon, one of our own SBC that we give our offering, uh, she wrote letters back to America and said basically this, put your money where your mouth is. And for years she would say, send money so we can get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And she would go into these places with moms in particular and she would share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they brought the gospel to the interior of China. The communist regimes rose up to destroy the church of the living God. You then had a cultural revolution and the absolute slaughter of Christians. Guess what? The beast is at it again. When the communists kicked all missionaries out in the late 1940s and then let them to start come back in before the Cultural Revolution, you know what these missionaries found? They did not find a church that was floundering. They did not find a church that was limping along on life support. They found a church that was strong because it was fortified through the crucible of persecution. They suffered for the cause of righteousness. They set their minds on things above. They are presently, today, more Christians in China than there are in the United States of America. You don't hear about it, but they're there. More than we used to send missionaries to China, they need to send missionaries to us. So, the current regime in China will die. Are you listening? That regime will die. And the regime in the U.S. <coughs> it will die. And the church of the living God will live on. What a bummer today to be born in North Korea. Where their leaders believe that they themselves should be worshipped as deity. Y'all know this is true. They demand worship from the people. They demand a picture to be placed in every room of their house. It's, an, it's illegal for Christians to gather 70% of Christians in North Korea will suffer persecution. Hear me. Demigods will rise and fall. But Jesus Christ will build his church. Let the nations roar. Let the waves and the seas batter about the city of God. Seas and waves will one day cease. But the city of God will remain. Please hear this. This is glorious. We see these things going on on the outside. But it cannot and will not undo what God does on the inside. It cannot shake his presence. Therefore, the city cannot be shaken. Notice next that God will help her when the morning dawns. Everybody in here needs God's help, whether you realize it or not. It's your greatest need. The help of God <clears throat> in your life. So at this point, you need to listen. The picture... Is to consider the nighttime. Have you ever been there? When you're a little kid, nighttime is scary. Many of you feared the dark when you were kids, and I've noticed going hunting with some of you that you still fear the dark. <laughs> when I was a kid out hunting, I couldn't wait for morning to dawn. As a matter of fact, my Uncle Mike broke me in early. He set me on a stump when I was 10 years old with a shotgun, <clears throat> and I bet you it was 3 o'clock in the morning. He wanted to get there early. And that was the longest hour or so in my life. I mean, every time something moved, I was like, 
But I sat and I sat and I learned. And I have to honestly tell you, I don't, I'm not afraid of things in the dark anymore. It, I, I was broken of that as a kid. So, God says, I will give you help when the morning dawns. You know, my response during the middle of the night is, I want help right now. Right? So, Lord, give me midnight, Lord, give me midnight help. Or one in the clock in the morning help. Or two o'clock in the morning help. Here's what the Lord says. Weeping may endure for the night. But a shout of joy comes in the morning. Aren't you thankful for that psalm? I know it's dark. I know it's scary. I know the night seems long. But the Lord says, wait for me. Wait for me. Human experience is that every minute seems like an hour in the night. Psalm 130 verse 6 says, My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. It's not enough to say that once. He had to say it twice. More than a watchman for the morning. More than a watchman for the morning. So here's the psalmist and he's troubled. And he's worried. And he's burdened. And he sits there and he waits for the Lord like the coming of the dawn. If that is you right now, keep waiting. Morning will come. God promises that morning will come. There may be weeping through the night, but God knows how to give a shout of joy in the morning. He majors in dispelling darkness. Doesn't he? The Lord knows how to sustain you in the night. He knows how to bring you through it until the morning. You know, there's a translation I think that we need to take note of that usually is not correct. And that is when the English Bible translates, patiently, I waited. That's actually not in the Hebrew. It is literally translated, waiting, I waited. So, in other, in other words, there's not a lot of force put on patient. Because when you need the help of the Lord, we want it right now. So really, it's waiting, I waited. I think you patiently wait at a doctor's office. But waiting for God is almost like waiting for your number to be called at the DMV. <laughs> Been over here at Ozark, the DMV? You go in there and you pull it and it's like number 43. And I said, well, what number is 20? That's the one going. Oh. Or nowadays they've got letters. And you get letter Z. And they're on maybe L. And you're thinking, oh my goodness. Every time your number is called, you get a little bit closer. So, child of God, hang on. Night time does not last forever. That's why the emphasis is on I will come in the morning. With the morning comes God's help. You may be a self-sustaining, self-secure dependent or independent soul. You can't be that as a child of God. You need the Lord's help. As a matter of fact, there's no salvation unless you submit to his leadership, unless you submit to his kingship, unless you submit to what he's done for you. You have to submit. So, so it is here. Wait on the Lord. Then the next picture in verse 6 is, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. You have to go back and think about what's going on on the outside. Chapter Psalm 2, right? We go all the way back. All the Psalms are interconnected. But when you go back to Psalm 2, 
Verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing. anointed. I hope you understand the world hates Christ. This world hates Christianity. Jesus said it. Don't think it's strange when they hate you. Why? Because they hated me. The world hates Christianity. But God has the last word. God has the last word. Hear this clearly. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. Nothing said about global warming there. Nothing about climate change. It's that God controls the world. It's his world. And all you got to do is look at history. And see when God intervenes. See, see when God makes nations desolate. He's done it throughout all of history. And he's going to do it again. But the, the noticeable thing is to think about the voice of God. Which is equal to the word of God. The kingdoms totter, shake, and they're overthrown. Nations and governments, folks, are shaky things. Ours shakier than I've ever seen it before. Nations are shaky. Governments are shaky. When you get a bad government, hold on. When you get a good government, don't be cocky. That's good political advice, isn't it? I think so. So here's this glorious picture. God from his city raises his voice and the earth, melt, earth melts. This is the glorious God of eternity thundering with his voice. And the sound of his voice, at the sound of his voice, pride melts. Enemies melt. Mockers shut their mouths. And rebellion is dissolved. In, in this psalm it says, in your presence, Lord, the mountains melt like wax. Hear this. When the living and true God speaks, all of nature falls on this face before the glory of God. That's what's going to happen in the future. When Yahweh speaks, let all the kings of the earth shut their mouths. So, Hamilton notes that the term employed melting away was used to describe the Canaanites melting away before the Israelites in Exodus 15, 5. 15, 15. And in Amos 9, 5, it describes Yahweh touching the earth with the result that it melts. Hamilton says, God's vowels, consonants, are y'all listening? Syllables, phrases, syntactical constructions, and sentences cause things like protons and neutrons to form atoms, and atoms to form molecules, and on the power of God's almighty utterance, the earth and the universe spring into being. Don't you understand that's what happened when God said, let there be light. Let there be light. It caused protons and neutrons to form atoms and atoms to form molecules out of nothing. That's what our God did. That same utterance that caused them to congeal will cause them to dissolve. Do you understand, folks, the power of the word of God when he speaks? And that's what you have right here from Genesis to Revelation. It's high time you either believe it or discard it. It is his truth. Or it's not. This is as much the word of God as if Jesus were to manifest himself bodily and stand in this church and speak to you. That's what we believe this book is. Its doctrines are holy, precepts are binding, historics are truth, decisions are changeless. All scripture, 2 Timothy, is given by inspiration of God 
and is profitable for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. This is the word of God. And here's what you need to know. The same way God created all things is the same way God will destroy it all. And he's going to do it by his spoken word. So when the sky falls and the sun explodes and the earth melts, the only safe place for you is the safe place that the people of God have. And that's in him. That's the only safety you're going to have. Now, check this little note. The Lord of hosts is with us, the Lord Almighty, the King of his armies, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Why do you think he uses the term Jacob? I mean, I know people get named Jacob sometimes, but I have to scratch my head a little bit and think about that one. Almost as close as Esau. You're not laughing. Well, the fact of the matter is, the reason the text is using Jacob is because it was the Lord God that changed his name. But also, usually when Jacob is used, God is trying to put the emphasis upon him working in spite of the fact that we are weak. He had to whoop his hiney and knock his hip out of place to get his attention. So, so for us, this is encouraging. This is the God of Jacob. He's the one that comes for weak people. That's me. Jacob means the back of the hill because he was snatching for Esau's hill as they came forth as twins, right? He's a hill grabber. I mean, we look at Esau and we're like, yeah, he was a heathen. He was a good old bubba, liked to sit on the tailgate and drink Budweiser. But we look at Jacob and we're like, a scoundrel. He cheated. He did everything possible to steal a birthright. But yet God says, the God of Jacob is our fortress. I'm a fortress to those who need help. That's you. That's me, right? So this is the appropriate place to bring the sermon to a close. Our infinite God who commands the nations and rules the world and speaks and things come to pass is the God that the New Testament says became one of us. Are you listening? The Bible says that the Word was in the beginning with the Father. And verse 14 of John 1 says, And the Word became flesh. Here it is. And dwelt among us. God is with us. And when the Son of God condescended from heaven to earth, wherein He was co-equal, co-essential, co-effulgent with the Father, and did not consider His equality with the Father something to be grasped, but made Himself of no reputation, we saw the glory of God. And God was with us. So the infinite, eternal God dwells in the midst of his people, and that is consummated in the incarnation of the Son of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now it is the church that is said to be his body. Think about this. Not this building. If this building goes away tomorrow, the church still stands. This is not the sanctuary. I've tried to correct some of you. Meet me in the sanctuary. No. So I meet you right in your heart. Because that's where God dwells. He dwells in people. He doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. So you think about this. It's the church. Then they sing the God of Jacob is our stronghold. The Lord reconfirms the covenant with Jacob. Changes his name into Israel. And described to emphasize that we are trouble people and we're needy. So our God knows exactly who we are. He knows what we need. He knows that we are his covenant people. And he's our stronghold. So, the covenant-keeping God who is on our side is supremely the place of safety.
The city of God is that safe place. The church is the happiest place on the earth. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the people of God. It is the place of life and refreshment in the midst of tumultuous, wicked, and assaulting world. It is this world that is under the sway of the evil one. And that world rages against God, his truth, his people. The city of God is the place where God's refuge and help comes from. His power, his presence, the God who speaks and the mountains melt like wax is our God. It's a reminder to us. If God be for us, Paul says, who can be against us? So the church is not just a place or a building you attend. Church is the city of God. Church is who you are. You're the city of God. It is the city of God's gladness, God's presence. It's the city of protection from this world. Christians who don't find their lives in the city of God, hear me, you live in a wilderness that's unprotected, malnourished, and exposed. You're welcome. That's where you live if you live outside the city of the people of God. You're trying to find life in a desert, and there is none. So the church of God is where the promise of God is most real to us, isn't it? And those promises are confirmed again and again and again as we preach this book. As the people of God, we listen. So the church is a place that our souls are refreshed through the word of God and the spirit of God like a gently flowing stream of blessings. So here's my final reminder. Don't forsake the kindness of the Lord in giving us such a great city. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, just my heart yearns, my soul, Lord, for that ultimate promise of fulfillment in the city of God. Lord, as your people, we look around at this world and we think, can it get any worse? Lord, you give us gladness. There is a river. That streams make glad the city of God. Lord, as your people on the outside, life can be falling apart. No matter what that may be. But on the inside, you make us joyful and glad in you. Because we have you. And if we have you, we have everything. But one day, Lord, you will remove all sin, all sorrow, all pain, all suffering... The former things will pass away, and behold, all things will become new. We know, the, the, we know what you tell us in your word, and we long for that day. For unbelievers, Lord, let them hear the strength of your word. I pray today that they will believe what you say from your word. For instance, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man will come to the Father except through me. Jesus, you said that. Either it's absolute truth or it's not. We know it is absolute truth. You're the only way to the Father. You're the only means of salvation. Lord, you gave those words. It's your voice. It's your utterance. It cannot be turned back. Uh, the only way that can happen is if they put you back in the grave. It can't be turned back. You're the way, the truth, and the life. You're the ultimate authority over all this world. Lord, may you work in the hearts of individuals today that don't know you, and may they submit to the Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Please join with me and stand and sing, All to Jesus I Surrender. 
This is Stan and Susan Williamson. Come on up. And they both know Jesus as their Lord. They both have followed believers' baptism. And they both have completed the new members class here at First Baptist Ozark. And we want to introduce you to them and let you know that they're the newest members of our church family. Amen. To God be the glory. I know you will want to get to know them. Uh, one dear lady reminded me this morning that we need to get to know each other by name. And you come up to the preacher and say, what's my name? Sometimes I'm going to stumble. And the, if, if, I'm, if I'm not around you a lot, that's one thing about hospital visits that helps your pastor. If I go see you in the hospital, I don't want you to get sick, you understand. But if I come see you in the hospital, it's rarely that I'll ever forget your name after that. But that's why the church needs to be joined together, around each other. So get to know uh, Stan and Susan, and I'll have you go back there with Don, and he'll have you stand in the back and, and get people to greet you. Uh, the other announcement I wanted to make is Miss Martha Young went to be with the Lord this week. So she passed away on Friday. Her health just really spiraled probably in, a, in about a two-week time frame. And so the funeral will be tomorrow at 4. And you senior adults listen to me especially. The visitation is after the funeral. Okay, that's different, but 4 o'clock funeral on Monday, tomorrow, and the visitation is after, and then there will be a graveside service at the Veterans Memorial on Tuesday. Okay? All right, City of God, we ought to sing before we leave, shouldn't we? 
You know that, that one psalm says, how can we sing the Lord's song when we're captive in a weary land? And the Lord says, you sing wherever you are. Whether you're captive or not. Whether you're in a communist regime or whether you're in a, whatever you're in. Whatever position you're in as the people of God. Sing because God deserves it. Amen. He deserves our praise. God bless you. Let's sing. Uh, Andy, can you find the chorus of the solid rock on Christ, the solid rock I stand? And let's, uh, but before we sing, let me invite everybody after we close this song who wants to be a part of the Back to Bethlehem uh, information meeting. We promise we'll keep you very briefly. Just come up here and be a part of the first uh, five or six pews in these two sections here, okay? God bless you. And on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand.